just want to say happy Father's Day to every man in this place. I was talking with uh, Don, they're here for the first time, but they don't have children of themselves, but he's been a father to many. And I know that that's the truth for many people in this room, is some of you don't have children of yourself, of your own, uh, but you fathered many. And some have your own children, but you fathered many more than just that. And so we want to wish you a happy Father's Day. I feel like in my heart, um, we're going to pray for you in some way this morning. I'm just not sure how it's going to play out. So I believe as we continue to go throughout service, uh, the Lord will be faithful to show me exactly what that looks like. Um, but I want to honor you guys today and just say thank you for being the men that God has called you to be, for showing up and, and doing what God has asked you to do. So let's give all the fathers a big round of applause today. For those who aren't here, for those who are no longer, maybe your dad is no longer living, we understand just like Mother's Day, um, it's not the happiest day for everybody, but at the same time, I know that we can also celebrate and honor just as well. Uh, so we're going to continue this series that we started a couple weeks ago, and I believe it to be very foundational for us to step into things that God has called us to truly step into. Over the last 15 months, I've truly and intentionally laid a foundation for all of us about identity and who we are to God and who he is for us. And I hope that you begin to catch the heart of those things. And I know sometimes I can sound like a broken record. I try to change the lingo as often as I can. But at the end of the day, it's about who we are to our Father and who he has been to us and who he wants to be. And so today I want to start with a statement specifically to the men in this room. And I believe this to be true. And I don't say this because it's just something that I put down on paper. I say it because as I thought through this statement, I see how important it truly is for fathers and husbands and men and young men to become men of God who are called for this, in this earth for a purpose. Now realize this, the one who is behind the pulpit is not the only man of God in this room. And I want to encourage you ladies with that understanding just as well. Just because I stand up here does not make me a man of God. I hope I was a man of God long before I accepted the call to ministry. And so your husbands and the fathers in this room are men of God. You are men of God. I know that's hard at times to either hear that about yourself or to say that about yourself in the mirror. You are a man of God. And many times we can look at our own performance and our own insecurities and the lack of where we should be in life and how we've acted toward maybe our spouse or our kids and we say, you know what, that's not me. I am not a man of God because if you knew me, you would not say that about me. But God calls us because he sees us from the future, not the present. And he's attempting to get our present to line up with our future, not say, you know what, man, you are not a man of God. No, he sees each and every one of you men as men of God. And so here's the statement that I made. I don't think it's on the screen today. It is the standard of today's men that I believe will make the most impact on the next generation. I want to make that very, very clear. The standard that you men hold is going to have the greatest impact on the next generation. Of course, we're called to love the next generation. Of course, we're called to teach them and to nurture them and to comfort them and to build them up and to do all those things. But at the end of the day, when we do not take a standard and hold true to that standard, whatever that may be, there are many standards that were held for many years that should have been abolished, that they were unnecessary, that they were legalistic, that they were something of religion, but they never produced love. But I'm talking about a standard that I'm just going to share in just a minute, a standard of who you are and what you represent to everyone in your life. Our standards do matter. And when we begin to let them go, what happens is the lines and the boundaries that are meant to protect, preserve, and promote the next generation become very blurred. And so men, we are placed here on this earth, to be men. Can I get an amen? To be men, not to be females, not to be a woman. We are placed on this earth to be men. And that as men, we are to provide stability. That that's what we have an opportunity as men, to provide stability, to provide a standard that others can look to, that they can respect, that they may not love, but they'll respect it and will hold them to a place where they can take the reins of what God has called them to do into the next season of life. 
and that we are called as men to produce courage in the next generation and lastly, direction. That we provide direction of where we're going, where God is having us go. Because our daughters and our sons, whether they're by blood or they're by spiritual descent, and our families, they need for us to remain stable in times of chaos and evil. Men, we need to remain stable. It doesn't mean you don't show your emotions because that's not stability. Just bottling things up and ready to explode at one moment is not stability. Knowing that dad's ready to explode at any moment, that's not stability. Stability is saying everything is going to be what? Okay. God is on the throne. Jesus sits next to him. He's mediating on our behalf. Everything's going to be okay. But when we lose our own stability, even when you lose your job or your marriage is on the rocks, to be able to be reminded and remind our families we're going to what? Make it. That's stability. It doesn't mean you're lying. You don't know how you're going to make it. You just know, you know what? We're not going to quit. I can tell you that one standard right there. We're not going to quit. When things get hard, we're not going to throw in the towel. And so stability is in the times of chaos when the world is going crazy and nobody knows how to define anything anymore in this world, we will be stable. And say, you know what? We're going to keep on forging forth. We're going to keep on serving God. We're going to keep on trusting that he is good. And so our families need us to remain stable, but they also need for us to set the standard. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Thank you, Megan. Perfect on your entrance. <laughs> as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There is a standard set. But I want to encourage you all what that looks like because many times we have made that statement so strong and we have dragged our kids into religion that no longer produces a relationship with the Father and they look at us and when they're 18 they're like, I don't want to do church anymore. Because that's never what it was about but we made it all about the church. We made it about if you want God then you come to church and you sit your butt in the church and you start to sing church songs and you start to... Be nice and fake it and pretend. But that's not what this is all about. So the standard that I want to uphold for my daughter is a standard that God is good, my daughter. And that we go and we be the church and we gather together as a community, but we don't go to an event. We don't go just to do church. That's not the standard summer. We're not just forced to do this and put on a smile. No, we are real people who are loving a real God who wants to use us for his glory and for his honor. It's a standard that we set, and we speak of stability, but the third thing, gentlemen, is that we speak courage into the next generation, to let them go take risks that are stupid at times, to let them believe something that you don't maybe feel like they should believe in, that you don't always have to pop the bubble, you don't always have to bring them down to common sense, you don't always have to go, you know what, I don't know how that's going to work, no, I want them to dream, I want them to believe. And of course, common sense, life will knock that into anybody. But at the end of the day, I want to I I put courage into my daughter's. Courage to believe, Summer, that one day you will be healed. Courage to go and do what God has placed inside your heart. At Tony and uh, uh, Mackenzie's graduation party yesterday, I met a gentleman. His, both of his daughters are missionaries to Turkey. And it's a scary place. 80% of it is Muslim, and it's not as scary as sometimes maybe going downtown Chicago and different parts of Chicago. But you know what? He's always produced and spoken courage into those girls to go and do what God has called you to do. And sometimes we don't understand it. Sometimes we want to protect it. And I know the women are designed to protect. The women are designed to keep them close. But men, there's something in us that calls the next generation up into their destiny. And that takes courage. So where there's fear, I'm going to always encourage my daughters. It's okay to be afraid, but it's not okay for fear to keep you from being courageous. And the last one is to provide direction. How do you do that? It's not through a sermon, I can tell you that. It's not through another, uh, you sit down with the family and say, this is how we're going to act and this is how we're going to be and this is what we're going to do. I'll tell you how you provide direction as a man. Follow me. It's what Jesus did with the disciples. He said, I want to show you something. What do you want to show us? I want to show you a new way of life. Follow me. 
And as, you, as they follow, they begin to watch because that's what kids do. The next generation is watching us. They're not just listening to us. They're watching us. And they're seeing how we love and we're seeing how we give and they're seeing how we, we, we serve God. And if we just are out just to produce some Christian generation, what we're going to get is powerless generation that is scared of the world and scared of the enemy. But when you start to infuse inside them, watch me do this. Watch me go after my dreams. Watch me be courageous. Watch me be stable. Watch me go after Jesus. Not perfectly, they start to watch it. And maybe in their 20s, they act a little crazy, but guaranteed they'll come back. And they'll follow the example that they knew. The thing that was embedded on their mind, the very thing they watched as our, their parents and their fathers walked this thing out. So where does that man come from that I'm talking about? Where is that type of man made? And how do we as men get there? I truly believe, and this is not just to try to make a connection to the sermon, but I truly believe that it's about taking our rightful place, all of us as righteous men, who have been sent on a mission to produce righteous seed in this earth. You are on a mission, every single one of you men, whether you have a biological son or daughter or not, you're on a mission to plant God's seed into the next generation. I don't know how that looks for you. I don't know what that looks like, but I do know that it doesn't look as picture perfect as we would hope that it does. And that we can't be moved by the behaviors and the ways that the next generation acts. Why? Because what we will do is we will then begin to judge and criticize and lay a gavel on the next generation that they will not do a good a job as we did. And so what happens is they live now with this, uh, this what do you call it on your shoulder? A chip on their shoulder of, I'm going to prove myself when they shouldn't have to prove anything except who they are as sons and daughters of the living God. Because we built them up in a place where they can do this. That they're called the next generation because God has placed them there, amen? And so that we stand in our place and we produce righteous seeds on this earth to raise up sons and daughters who know who their father is and they know how valuable they are to their father had a conversation with somebody yesterday that for many years growing up did not know their value and therefore they sought to get their value in so many different things. I found myself in the same place, getting my value from ministry, getting my value from your validation, not yours specifically, but when I was in ministry prior to this. Is that because I didn't truly understand my worth outside of those things because that's all I knew, it began to build the worth inside of me. That the next thank you, the next great message, the next email saying you helped me out tremendously just began to build up my validation of my worth. And when God somehow in his most gracious, loving, crazy, can't understand why God does that way, he stripped everything from me and said, you're still valuable to me. And I had nothing to offer him at that point. I had nothing to offer except the fact that I could just receive from him. And that was the biggest lesson I learned at that stage in my life a couple years ago was how to realize or believe I'm valuable to God, not because I preach well, not because I love well, not because I do well, but because of who I am to him. And when we can let that next generation, no matter how hard it is, get it through their skulls and into their heart, that they are valued by God so much, not by what they accomplish for him, but who they are to him, we could literally raise up a generation of secure sons and daughters to a father. Psalms 112, verse 1 through 3, it says these words, I believe it's going to be on the screen. It says, praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. That fear is not one who is afraid of God. It's a fear, it's a reverence of God, of course. It says that he greatly delights in his commandments and his descendants will be mighty on this earth. That's what I have, I'm looking forward to. No matter what happens with my daughters and, and how many kids they have, that does not matter when it comes to this, that I will have descendants beyond just my two daughters that will be great on this earth and I pray that my impact in their life will have brought a sense of value from their heavenly father to them so that they can walk securely, not trying to find it in the sports and achievement and their grades and what they finish and 
whether they graduate from college or they don't or they start a business or they don't, that their validation doesn't come from any of those things except from the affirmation that you are my beloved son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And so we are not trying to manufacture good Christian kids. Can I get an amen? It it works well until they're six and then it doesn't work well (laughs) after that. We are called to invest, invest, invest in the next generation and show them the kingdom of God and to reveal to them, to show them at times how much we can, how much love they have from their father and who they are to their father. And so who leads the way? I believe us men do. Men who fear God, men who hear from God, men who know their God, and men who love their God. But before we can adequately lead this next generation, we must step into our identity, who we are in Christ and how we are known in heaven. Only then can we make the true impact that God has called us to make. But because of a lack of knowledge of which I talked about two weeks ago, the enemy for all of us has stolen something so precious. Our identity and our inheritance. I'm going to show you in just a moment how that's so true. The conversations I get to have with many of you, the questions that you get to ask me at times reveal something so important to me when it comes to understanding this. Look at, um, I think it's Habakkuk or Hosea 4.4.6. He says, my people are what? To me, that is amazing because it's his people that are being destroyed. Like he didn't protect them. Why? Because they're being destroyed from a lack of knowledge. The reason why I don't have the remaining part of that verse is because he's specifically speaking to the priests at that time who are rejecting the knowledge of God. But this one applies to all of us, that because of a lack of knowing something that God knows about you, who you are and how you're known in heaven. So he tells Gideon, heaven knows you this way. You are a what? Mighty man of valor. Okay, that's how heaven knows Gideon. But Gideon doesn't know that about himself. Gideon is a place where he's ready to quit. Gideon is like, I don't know how I can do this. And I find it funny how many times we want to grow in our strengths. But in our weaknesses, he is what? He's made strong. I want to be, I want God to take me to that place where I go, God, I don't know if I can do that. Yes, we're in the place that you belong. That's what God, like heaven's shouting good. Now he's going to discover how we see him. And heaven sees you a certain way. Heaven, heaven up, in, up, up, up there in heaven, they go, oh, that's so-and-so. That's a mighty woman of valor. That's a mighty man of valor. That's a man of God. That's a woman of God. Oh, that one's equipped to do great things for the kingdom. And we're down here like, I don't know, God. I don't think I can do this. Of course you can't because it's by his what? It's by his grace and his ability. So I just want to encourage you, don't wait till heaven to get what is rightfully yours right now. I know many of you are just succumbed to the idea that one day I'll have peace. One day I'll have victory. One day I'll be free. No, that peace is yours. That victory is yours right now. That, 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 that overcoming nature that God has given to you is yours right now. That it's not just when I get to heaven, finally I won't have to deal with the devil. No, the devil has been dealt with. The fight is not against him. The fight is the good fight of what? Faith. And how many of us are like, I just wish the devil would leave me alone. I know he could be like that younger brother or sister. Summer. I hear it every day. Carly, why did you? Just fill in the blank. And that's what we act like sometimes. Like the devil is just an annoyance. Until you understand what I'm going to share with you, you'll realize the place that God has given to you. It's getting hot up here. Romans 8, 16, and 17. Look at this verse. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. And there's not a child of God that God does not love. There's not a child of God that is not his beloved. There's not a child of God that he does not have precious thoughts toward all the time. And so he bears witness that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we're what? Heirs. You're an heir of the most powerful being 
the creator of the universe, the Alpha and Omega, you are an heir to the Father in heaven. And you're a co-heir with Jesus Christ. So whatever Jesus has the right to access while he was on this earth, you have the same right to access. Why? Because you are a co-heir. And my hope is that you just start acting like it. Not trying to become it. Not trying to earn it. Not trying to prove that you deserve it. But just to start acting like I'm a co-heir of Christ. I'm an heir of God. Do you know what is in store for you right now? So if indeed we suffer with him, I love that right there. Is there suffering while you're a child of God? Yes, there is. Just because you're an heir of God doesn't mean you won't suffer. If you suffer with him, you may also what? Be glorified with him. And so many of us in this room, and I felt this two weeks ago. I was praying on my porch before I came to service on uh, two Sundays ago. And this is what I felt like the Lord was telling me, Justin, Functional Christianity is still looming very large in the lives of so many. And I want to show you how this is. Because it is important for us to break the back of functional Christianity. It's relational before what? Functional. And why is this? Because we are very self and sin conscious. Now, I'm going to do my best to clarify this because when you finally get this, you will realize why you want to go back into function. When you are self and sin conscious, it means this. If you, if, you, if you went to the mirror and you were getting ready and your hair was out of whack, what would you be thinking about if you knew it but didn't fix it when you're in public? Your hair is out of whack, right? You'd be very self-conscious. So no matter what somebody's talking to you about, you'd be like, oh my gosh, my hair is out of whack. Or you're like, man, I'm wearing a woman's robe while I'm ministering. <laughs> Self-conscious, you know, you kind of feel that way. They don't have men's white robes anywhere, so I don't even think they have them. They do, I just didn't want to spend that much money. No, this came from Kohl's. And I said, ma'am, I need a robe. She goes, oh, Sir, do you know where the bra section is? I said, I don't know. She goes, oh, that lady will take you to the, the lingerie section. It's right over there. So that's me and my two daughters were looking for a robe over there. So very hurriedly, very hurriedly. Okay, so because we're this way and we hear a message about what I'm saying, identity, guess what? When you're self-conscious, you go into fixing mode. You go into making myself better. Why? Because if I feel this way about me, he must feel this way about me. If I'm out of whack spiritually, he must feel like I'm out of whack spiritually. And if I feel inadequate, he must, make sure, he must for sure know how inadequate I, are, I am. And so what happens is because I'm very self and sin conscious, I'm always trying to find a way to mask it. I'm always trying to find a way to make this feeling go away. And the best way that we've learned in church how to make it go away is be a better Christian. Okay, we're going to teach you now how to stop being angry. We're going to teach you now how to love your neighbor. We're going to teach you now how to give. We're going to teach you how to serve because we want you to become a better Christian. And what happens is all tied to one thing, functional Christianity that is overmasking this idea of sin consciousness. So we go to church, we serve, we do all this stuff, but we go home and we go, it's just not enough. I don't feel like I still measure up, and so I'm going to serve more, and I'm going to try to give more, and I'm going to tr keep on giving more, okay? I'm going to try to give more. We don't want to be set free from that too much, right? And so what happens is we try to live a life to make us feel better about us, okay? And so we, I get these questions about, Justin, I know you say I'm the righteousness of God, but when I sin, what does God, and Justin, I'm struggling with this, so when I'm struggling, how does and we're just constantly trying to filter. How do you filter this message of righteousness and identity with who I am? Because that's how we see us. And the illustration I gave you many, many months ago, probably a year ago, it, I was driving down Route 30. It was about uh, just finishing my basketball career because it's over because I ruined my knee. Um, I'm still very disappointed about that. Um, but I was driving early in the morning and a cop pulled up behind me. And if you've ever driven with a cop behind you, what happens? You immediately start to remember 10 and 2. You start to realize, okay, am I in the right lane? 
what's the speed limit, and you start to get super hyper-focused about driving what? Better. And as long as that cop is behind you, you're tense, and you're wanting to just make sure you're driving as perfectly as you can. And this is how many of us live our Christian lives. That the law that we're dead to, the law that is no more, the law that has been fulfilled in Christ, we go, you know what, I need, I, I actually, I need that for my Christian life. So I need somebody to tell me the long list of functional things I need to do to be a better Christian, and now it can guide me. And so we feel tense, we never feel like we measure up, but man, I got a good functional script back here telling me, stay in between the lines and don't go that way and don't go that way. What happens when the cop veers off into the exit? And then you drive. What happens? You're now free from the condemnation that that cop brought. It doesn't mean you're free to go and speed and do all that crazy stuff. But what it means is I'm living under an idea called grace and truth. It's called Jesus now leading the way. That I'm no longer looking back and going, uh, do I measure up? I realize I never did, but Jesus is now part of my life. And so now I get to drive according to grace. I get to drive according to I get to drive the speed limit. Whoever said that before? I get to drive the speed limit. Why? Because it honors the Father, and it's not me trying to do something to get something. It's me living in response to the cop no longer is behind me. And there's one person, a believer, that lives with the cop always behind them, and there's another that lives with grace constantly teaching and pushing them. And when you leave these doors, you feel two different ways. When you're self and sin conscious, you are always trying to wait, make a way for him to be happy with you. When you're grace conscious, you realize he's happy with me because of Christ and Christ alone. And now I get to enjoy a relationship with him. And so we have become very fixated on our behavior and how it impacts how we can receive from God. But we don't fully understand that the power comes with the gift. Listen to my words. That there's a, let me just say this again, that the power comes with the gift and the gift of righteousness, the gift of grace comes with it, the power to transform. When you're sin and self-conscious, you're trying to change you. And how many have been there before? I, Lord, I am going to stop that thing that I've been doing. Lord, I'm going to be more patient with my kids the next time they act up. Lord, I'm going to tell the truth. Or Lord, I'm not going to do this. Or Lord, I'm not going to look at that on the internet. And so what happens is we make all these vows. And then what happens hours and days and weeks later? We go right back into it because we were attempting to change us. Rather than to receive a gift that actually comes with the power to transform me. That is a big difference when it comes to Christianity. If you want to be a better Christian, go and try to be a better Christian. If you want to be transformed into a son or daughter of the living God, receive the gifts that he's given to us because they come with the power to transform. And so how do you become in the kingdom of God? If I told you how God sees you, and you come with this self-conscious or functional way of thinking, what happens is you go, okay, God, I'm a man of God, okay, so I need to really start stepping up my game because I need to become that by what? Doing. How do you become in the kingdom of God? By receiving. And it says, I received the gift of righteousness that I didn't earn, I don't deserve, but that's okay because Jesus did it for me. I receive it, I receive his abundance uh, uh, grace and I receive it willingly, that now begins to penetrate my heart because I believe it, and it now starts to transform my life. And it's not because of what I did, I'm now doing because I'm being transformed, not doing to try to be transformed. And that's the gospel. That's, that's the kingdom of God that is inside of all of us, is we, we become by receiving. So somebody sits in front of me across the table and goes, man, I just need to need more faith. And I just, I just need to re really... We really just, need, I just need to be more pure. Oh, totally. I, I, I completely 100 degree uh, agree with that. But what I don't agree with is how you become that. How do you become more pure? Well, you know what? I need to stop looking at this and I need to, I need to throw my phone away. And then I, I really just, I, need, I just need every single woman on the planet not to walk past me at any moment during the day. <laughs> right? I was in New York. It was crazy. And... Or this way is, Father, I just received the purity that comes from Christ who lives on the inside of me and I've been crucified with Christ. 
and it's no longer I live. So, Father, I thank you that I'm pure because of your word, and I'm pure because of your spirit, and that I just received that today. And I receive it this morning, Father God, so that as I go throughout my day, that purity actually begins to permeate my mind and my heart today. That when I walk throughout this life, Father, just remind me that I'm pure. Remind me that a pure man doesn't look at that. It's not, I don't look at that, therefore I'm pure. No, Father, Jesus was pure, therefore he didn't do the many impure things that we find ourselves doing. And so, Father, I just receive the gift of purity today because that's who Christ is on the inside of me. And I know I'll become that. And I do that over a period of a couple weeks. There'll be a time where I, I realize, well, I didn't do it, but I'm not struggling with that anymore. Why not? Because I receive and I became. And that's how you become in the kingdom of God, by receiving. It's hard, I'm telling you. I remember at the place where I was struggling with uneasiness and anxiousness over the fact that I didn't have ministry to do. I wasn't no longer in a ministry, and the Lord taught me how to receive rest. And each and every morning, I did it for almost two months, each and every morning, Father, I just receive your rest today. I know there's moments throughout the day where I'm going to get uneasy and anxious about not doing something for your kingdom or being in a ministry. And I thank you at those moments you remind me that the Prince of Peace lives on the inside of me and that he gives me perfect rest. And I rest as a son of God. And for two months, I just practiced that every single morning, Father receiving. And eventually it came to a point where those anxious thoughts were no more. When I came with a circumstance that kind of was trying to shake me up. I was at such a place of rest and it wasn't because I was trying to. I became it. Some of you struggle with people in your family. You struggle to forgive. Father, I just receive your forgiveness and it's by your forgiveness that I can become a person of love. And I thank you that you show me how you see them so I can see them the same way. And Father, as I receive this, I thank you that I become a person that can forgive anybody, no matter if it's my enemy or my family member who does me wrong. I was looking up and I can't even see you because of all the lights. But that's how you do this. This is, this is Christianity. It's not a functional way of living. And this is why this message is so important. That we cannot boldly, boldly, everybody say boldly. We cannot boldly approach and intimately relate to the Father until we know and understand the truth that I'm going to share with you today. That there's a reason many of you struggle to approach God. Some of you struggle to be intimate with God. Some of you struggle to pursue God and to receive from Him. Why? This right here. When you wake up, can anybody read those words? This is my side and this is Summer's side. She said, Dad, you have horrible handwriting. <laughs> but many of you wake up and you put the robe on. You put this on. For some reason or another, you feel, you feel like this is you. You deserve that this is the robe that you are called to live. And so you wake up and some of you wake up with, what does that say? Failure, shame, worthlessness, I'm no good. Some of you wake up with just, I'm going to sin today. I'm filled with guilt, conviction, oh no, that's addiction, drugs, and disappointment. That, that's what you put on. You don't put it on because you're proud of it. You put it on because this is just who I am. This is why I come from a, a crazy past, and so this is who I am. And so now we try to relate with God like this. Can you imagine what that must look like, God? And so we don't come to him boldly. We can't be intimate with him. Why? Because look at me. And self is now where? At the forefront. And this is who I am, so there's no way a just, holy, righteous, loving God is going to allow me to approach confidently. So this is how we approach him now. And we just go, this is how we, it looks. And we go, okay, God, um, I just asked for your blessings today. And Lord, I just ask, um, I'm going through this situation, if you would be so willing to help me out and Lord, I, I could use some favor today, and I'm really just struggling with this, and thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. And then we, we leave, but there was no intimacy there. There was no relationship there. That was like a poor servant who's so unashamed of who he is, trying to enter a holy presence, uh, the holy presence of God. And it breaks my heart that this is what we put on in the morning. Why? Because I haven't done anything differently. And so maybe if I do something better, I'm going to try to make sure these things are no longer here. And it's permanent marker, and so I know it can't be erased, and so this is just the way that it is. And so we struggle to approach God. We struggle to be intimate, to pursue Him. Why? Because this is who I am. And there's no way He'll accept this. And so I'm going to do my best to get into a church and try to make this look better. And that's not what it's about. 
You can't make this better. Romans 3 says your righteousness is like filthy rags anyway. So no matter how righteous you act, it still does not produce what you hope that it would. Romans 5.17. Are you guys still with me? Okay. I know we have something going on after service at home. So, for if by one man's offense death did reign through the one, much more those who receive... I know it's such an oxymoron in the kingdom of God about receiving, but it's all throughout the New Testament that we must learn how to receive because how do you become? By receiving. And how do you receive? By believing. That we receive the abundance. When that was written, inspired by the Spirit of God, when that word abundance was written, it was meant to say, you have permission to believe that my grace is what? Abundant. I have permission by the holy, righteous, just God that I can believe His grace is abundance. Which means this, it never, never runs out. Calm down. You don't all have to say amen at once, okay? And I receive what? A gift of righteousness. And those who do are the ones who reign where? In this life. Those who don't are still going to heaven. But they will struggle their entire life all the way there. Circumstances will determine how they're going to be. Their sin will determine who they are. And the words spoken over them are going to be determined who they're going to become. Why? Because they didn't just receive the abundance of grace. Why? Because I can't, I don't deserve grace. Who deserves grace except the one who wears this? That's what grace is for. It's an abundance of grace and I receive what? The gift of righteousness. And how do you receive it? Just like I showed last week, you take a, a bottle. It's great to receive the bottle, but this does nothing to you by just receiving it. What do you do? Open it up. And that's great, but it still does nothing to you until what? You drink. And some of you need to just drink of the gospel every day. Every day. Drink it. Take a drink of God. You gave me your righteousness. And, and you, you drink it with reservation until you realize it's not about you. It's not about you at all. It's about him and what Jesus did for you. But many of us receive it we maybe even open it. We talk about it to other people, but we struggle to drink it. And how do I know? When you feel guilty and condemned, what do you do? Shame and write another thing on here going, you know what? I did it again. Or do you go, right now I need a drink of this. I screwed up with my kids. I apologize to them, but Father, I feel so bad. And so what do we do? Either wallow in our feeling or drink of the gospel. And I am here to tell you, if you drink of the gospel, it's not about getting rid of the motions. It's about transforming the person so that he doesn't get like that toward his kids again. It's not like, oh, I'm going to stop. God, I'm so sorry. I spoke like that to my kids. I won't do it again. Uh, how about you don't tell me any of that and just drink? Get a little intoxicated with the gospel and you'll start acting very differently. Amen. So Paul reminds us that the gospel reveals something very important. Bobby, are you mad? I'm just joking. She told me before service she had to leave at 11.10. I don't know why I do those kind of things. I'm sorry. Romans 1.16 and 17, okay? I know we've been over this before, but I want you to see this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God. The power doesn't come from your obedience. The power of God doesn't come from you reading more or you serving more. The power comes from one source, the gospel. And so as I drink of the gospel, I'm being empowered to live the gospel. That's how I now get empowered. I drink of the gospel. And so what happens is, it's the power of God for what? Salvation, which is more than just going to heaven, for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, I want you to see this, for in the gospel... 
it reveals one thing. What does it reveal? His righteousness. It doesn't reveal his wrath, his judgment, his anger, his disappointment, that you're no good and that you're of no value. It reveals one thing, his righteousness. So when I drink of the gospel, the thing that's revealed is not my sin, it's his what? Are you catching this? Do you disagree with me? It's okay if you do. Just study it though. It's, it's life changing. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 34. And there are some things I really want to get into. So I know if, I'm probably more anxious to, with the timing than you guys are. But thank you for being attentive. Awake to what? And do not sin. And I remember telling you the other day is that many of us try not to sin so that we can be. And he says, no, 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 no. It's not, it doesn't work like that. Awake to what? My righteousness that I have given to you as a gift. And then now go and sin no more. Wow. That changes the way that I now approach sin because now when I awake to his righteousness, I realize, wow, this is who I am. And I look at sin and go, I don't even want that anymore. That the gospel has the ability to change my desire for those very things. And so you awake to righteousness and you don't sin. This righteousness that God gives, it can't be earned, as you know. It can't be obtained by religious obligation. It can't be achieved by a person's effort. Nothing you can do, no matter how religious, pious you are, can make you righteous. It's a gift. But this gift allows you this very thing. You can put that on the screen. Righteousness is this. I want you to see these two statements. Uh, Keep going. Righteousness is the reality or the permission to stand now, instead of like this, I can get up and go, you know what? The only reason I'm on my knees is because of me thinking about myself. I'm now going to put my eyes upon who? Jesus, the author and the perfecter of my faith. As I look at the Lamb, the mediator between me and the Father, I now enter like this, not even focused on myself. And now I have the right to stand In the presence of God with what? No guilt, no condemnation, no shame, and no one ounce of unworthiness. Why? Because my attention is where? On the worthy Lamb of God. So I'm standing in the presence not going, don't feel bad, don't feel bad, don't feel condemned, don't feel, no, no, don't, don't, no, no. It's because I got fixated on how good Jesus is and the sacrifice that was sufficient on my behalf and the blood that was shed so that was cleansing of all my sin and my past is no more in the new covenant. I look at him and I realize I'm not even focused on Justin anymore so I stand in the presence of God. There's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no condemnation and I don't have any sense of unworthiness. And now what happens when I pray? It changes everything. No longer am I begging No longer am I hoping that he'll do something on my behalf. I'm now praying like Jesus did. Father, I pray only because of those who are going to hear my prayer, but I declare Lazarus, come forth. Why? Because he was a man of authority because he had the righteousness from the Father. And now look at this, second one. Righteousness, not only the ability to stand there, but it's also to stand now. When I leave the presence of God, so to speak, you don't figuratively do that or you don't literally do that, but just figuratively do that, is that, uh, next slide. Righteousness is now the ability to stand in the presence or in the face of the enemy. I love this. Without any sense of inferiority, weakness, and fear. Why? Because he is going to, when you stand in front of him, declaring that God said this, the walls of Jericho are going to come down, what's he going to tell you? Who do you think you are? Wait, you think God's going to bless you? Don't you know what you have done? And he starts to what? Accuse the brethren. He starts to remind us of all these things that are listed right here on this robe that we put on willingly. And so we left that time of focus on Jesus. And I want to remain focused on Jesus. So when I stand in the presence of the enemy, there's no inferiority. There is no weakness or fear. And now I'm confident that this is what my father said. Enemy, I don't care what you tell me. I am not going into the fight with you. This is a fight to hold on to what my father said. This is not a fight to try to get something from the enemy. Are you following along?
And so once I received the gift of righteousness, John, you want to come up? Sorry, my brother, I had to do this to you. If you want to sit back there every single week, you're going to come up eventually. John, I just want to apologize beforehand. I got a medium woman's robe. I didn't have you in mind when I bought this robe, so please forgive me. But once I receive the gift of righteousness, God gives me permission to declare these words. My relationship with my father has been restored. It's been restored. There's no longer me trying to make things right with God. You cannot make things right with God. Jesus did. And I get to declare, it is restored. And so a divine exchange was made. You probably don't need this guy, do you? Okay, John, come over here. Okay, I don't know if you can read this, but I have an account. This is John's account, and this is Jesus' account, okay? I want you to do something. Put it on this way. No, this way. (laughs) Okay, now show everybody what that says. Okay. Okay, I want you to see something. Once he puts that on, look at uh, Isaiah. Go to Isaiah, Jackson, the 61. Nope, Isaiah 61. It's kind of at the end. There it is. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he, this is speaking of Jesus, has clothed me with what? Garments of salvation. This is good because clothing is when you go out and during your day. I, 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 this is not, what I'm about to share with you is not a Hebrew thought. It's not like Greek. It's, not like, it's just a thought I had when I went into Kohl's to get a robe, okay? <laughs> that the garment of salvation is what you live this new life with. That you're secure in your salvation of who you are and where you're going to go one day. But he has also what? Covered me with a... When do people usually wear a robe? When they're what? Yeah, Naked. That there's a place of complete vulnerability and transparency. That this is the most vulnerable part. And that's where I want you to see that God, you're doing a good job up here. It's hot, isn't it? Hold on. (laughs) Greg, that's for you. Um, And he puts on, so at his most vulnerable moment, the most shameful moment, think about this. Guys, I'm almost going to finish, okay? In the Garden of Eden, they were naked. They did not know it because they were clothed with the glory of God. When they sinned, what happened? They now knew both were, and they were ashamed. They hid. And what did they make? Fig leaves to cover up the private parts. Why? Because they were ashamed of their nakedness. And what did God make for them? A covering of what? An animal. The fig leaves are the fruit of their own labor. It's the fruit of what they have planted. It's the fruit of something of their own works. And so they cover it up with their own functional Christianity going, okay, I hope this works. I still feel ashamed inside. I don't know why, but Father, why? Because they're ashamed of holy God. God said, you know what? I'm going to do something that you did not create, that you did not make, that you did not produce on your own works. It was a... Uh, animal, and I'm going to now kill that animal, sacrifice representing Jesus, and I'm going to now cover you with that. So now I know you're naked, but I also cover your nakedness so that we could have a relationship again. Are you following me? And so when we receive, when we drink of this, he puts on this robe of righteousness. This is what you need to put on every morning, no matter what you think you deserve, no matter how good your dreams were or how they weren't. It's like Put it on and say, I'm the righteousness of God today. Why? Because by Jesus, my relationship with him has been restored. And so I want you to see this. Jackson, can, there's a Kleenex to your right. Can you grab it? This is, this is uh, John's account. This is what he deserves because of the wages of his what? The wages of his sin is death. And so in his account is sin, expectation of wrath and expectation of God's judgment. In his account is bondage from the things that he dabbled with maybe as a young boy now he's in bondage to them in his account is fear fear will permeate his decisions fear of god and and fear of others and fear of taking steps of faith shame is going to be in there from what he did guilt from who he messed with and what who he did wrong and what he stole condemnation because when he stands before a holy god he feels this condemnation think about this whole thing of these should be flipped 
demand on this side. There is now something as a result that is demanded of us. It's demanded our death. And Jesus said, I'm going to take that place. And what he does is so amazing is that he goes, on my account, it's an account called grace. And John, you are now completely, you have all access to this account. And we're going to actually now, we're going to name it John's account. And in this is no longer demand. It's all about me supplying forgiveness, me supplying mercy, me supplying favor, me supplying security of my love to you, me supplying that, John, you are free, me supplying that you will always have victory because you are overcomer. And what he does is he goes, this, we shall remember what? No more. There is no longer a wage of sin. Why? Because I... Now look at this, go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Because I, for he made him who knew no sin to what? Be sin. Think about this. Jesus became what? Sin. He didn't just die for sins. He actually became sin. So sin was on that cross, was judged that moment. And so there's no more wages of sin for me. Why? Because I put on the robe of what? Righteousness. And it says that we might become, become. How do you become? By what? Receiving the righteousness of God in where? In Christ. Now look at this. Jesus, did he ever sin? So he had to receive sin to become sin by what? Faith. Was our righteousness ever good enough to make us righteous? So now just as Jesus received sin by faith, I must now receive what? His righteousness by faith. He didn't deserve my sin. I don't deserve his righteousness. So he showed me, Justin, I'm going to receive all your sin. Everything you did, everything that you guys committed, I'm going to receive it, become sin on that cross, take the wrath of God, fulfill the cup that, that, that I said I didn't want to drink, but I, I was willing to, to drink it on your behalf. Now, Justin, you do the same thing, and you put on the robe of righteousness, and you receive all of my supply in those things. And I will promise you, I will remember your sin no more. So you no longer owe anything from this account. All of this, we can get it. Almost there. We can now, no, it's all been transferred here. Every single thing is on, so whatever Jesus deserves, it's in my account. And so when I wake up, I wake up with an account that is full of favor, forgiveness, love, mercy, his grace, his empowerment, everything that we'd ever need. That's the gospel. That's how you walk in this thing. You keep the robe of righteousness on. So when you walk around, man, we don't see any of these things. And that's why somebody goes, man, John, why are you so different? I thought you were going to be a failure in your life. I thought you were going to be a worthless, no good. And the enemy goes, wait, 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 wait. And I, I just tell him, just like you would if you're winning a basketball game, look at the scoreboard, buddy. Amen. Look at the scoreboard. Because I can tell you the scoreboard reads, Jesus won, the enemy is no longer even part of the game. Hallelujah. Amen? And you wear this well. You wear this as a son of the living God who is the beloved son, the beloved daughter of Almighty God. And you put that robe on every single morning not to become righteous. You put it on because it's yours. You're an heir of God and you're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So put it on with a smile and say, I get it now. Enjoy the Father today. Why? Because I have the robe of righteousness in the most intimate moments of life. Amen? I'm done. You done? It's hot up here, isn't it?